Our scripture this afternoon is taken from the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll begin reading in verse 21 and read down through verse 23. That's Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23, although we'll make reference to other portions in the chapter. And it reads as follows. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. I must say that Peter is probably every man's apostle. I mean, he is the one apostle that we can all identify with. Uh, we, we can't always identify with the apostle who was known as the apostle of love because we're not always that loving or are we consistent in, our, in showing it. Uh, but Peter we can identify with. I like what one preacher said. He said that Peter often had nothing to say, and it never stopped him from saying it. I mean, Peter was one of those guys that you can, he's the bungling one, he messes up, and we identify with Peter. But at, at times, and I think perhaps this particular text is one of those times where we have to sympathize with him. Because after all, up, up until the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord, the, 20, the, the 16th chapter of Matthew represents one of the high points in Peter's life. I mean, this is the one time he said r the right thing. You remember earlier in the chapter when Jesus raises the question, who do men say that I am? And when they give the various answers, he turns to those that he had spent time with and had invested in terms of preaching and teaching to them privately. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and he gave the answer. And, and, and Jesus anchors that answer for all eternity throughout or for the, the life of the church. Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father who is in heaven. That is the right answer. That is the answer, he says, upon which the church will be built. That profession, that, that knowledge of who I am. And so that's Peter's high point. But yet, only Peter can take such a high moment where he his faith and his profession is called the, the, the rock upon which Christ will build his church. Only Peter could be able to manage to take that high point to, and then reverse it and take us to the valley where he is called by the, the, the Savior that he professes he is then called the devil. And that's exactly what happens in the text. Because we are told that, that afterwards, after Jesus confesses or, or affirms Peter's confession that he is indeed the Christ, that he is the Messiah, in other words, the promised and prophesied Messiah from Scripture, that Jesus is the one, 
And Peter has professed this, and Jesus says, this is the rock upon which I will build my church. And then we read in verse 21 that at that point, Jesus began to intentionally and, 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 and more specifically emphasize the necessity of his suffering. And so one of the things that I think is critical here, and this is perhaps what leads us from the mountaintop of Peter's profession to the low point of Jesus' rebuke of him, is that there is a connection that needs to be made between Christ as the Messiah, as Peter proclaims, and the suffering that awaits him in Jerusalem. So that, that those, the hearers, the disciples who are present, would understand that what is taking place to Jesus, even though it is coming from the hands of sinful men, it's not so much the hands of men that are to be that are to be viewed here as much as it is the work of God. And so there's a connection between Jesus as Messiah and the suffering that he would encounter. And so Jesus began at that moment to lay upon and to, to emphasize to his disciples the necessity of what he was going to endure. And the reason for that is because there is an inexorable connection between Jesus as Savior and Jesus the one who suffers at the hands of the religious leaders and ultimately at the hands of God. And so since he has been so, so clearly confessed, he then begins to discuss what it means for him to be the Messiah. And that's what he begins to emphasize in his teaching. And again, here comes Peter. We have him at his high point where he has confessed that Jesus is the, the, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And when Jesus begins to stress that he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer and he must die and he must be raised again, Peter speaks up. And here, here's what I really love about Peter in this instance. He doesn't want to embarrass our Lord. So he takes him aside and he rebukes him. Chutzpah. That's what they call it. Chutzpah. He's got chutzpah. He's, you know, he's, he's got, he's, he's, he's pretty bold, but, but he doesn't want to embarrass Jesus. So he pulls him aside and he says, Lord, that'll never happen. Jesus, again, because of this great confession that Jesus, that, that Peter has made, Jesus rebukes him and he says, get behind me. Satan, isn't it interesting? Just a few verses ago, upon this rock, I'll build my church. And now here he says, get behind me, Satan. A few moments, I just want to talk about a couple of things. What is it that would cause Jesus to rebuke G uh, Peter in such a strong way? I mean, why is it? Why, why is it that, that Jesus would, I mean, certainly he could have just said, well, Peter, no, you're wrong. But he uses very severe language. He, he calls him Satan. He calls him, and it's not that he is the embodiment of Satan, but certainly his words, the words that, that Peter and the intent that Peter is, is trying to reinforce is nothing less than satanic. And in essence, what, what, what Peter is, is hoping for is a Messiah that he has professed, but a Messiah without a cross. 
Bishop Fulton J. Sheen, who was a Roman Catholic preacher or uh, 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 a Roman Catholic uh, a preacher in the 50s who had a television show. It was, I don't remember it, but I, I, I heard about it. But he wrote a book that uh, I thought was interesting, uh, The Life of Christ, and he has a chapter in the book called Three Deviations from the Cross. And what he, what he, what he uh, emphasizes is that Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is, nothing, is to be understood as nothing less than Satan trying to keep Jesus off the cross. It's for this reason, I think there's, there's much validity to that, and it's for this reason that Jesus equates Peter's um, rebuke as nothing less than satanic because what Peter wants is to keep Jesus off the cross. And so what I want to look at are two basic reasons why Peter would speak in the way that he does. Why would Peter want to keep Jesus from the cross? And then want to try to make some correlations to the challenges that we face in our day as it relates to the Christian message. Because Peter's intent is not intentionally, it's, it's certainly not the same as Satan. Satan knows the end and, and, and he wants to keep Jesus from being what he's supposed to be. But that's not what motivates Peter. There are two possible reasons why Peter is appalled. That such a thought of Jesus suffering at the hands of these religious leaders would be a good thing. Why he did not think it would be a good thing. First reason is because, number one, Peter had spent time with Jesus. And he recognized, at the very least, he's a good man. He's a good man, and it just simply doesn't make sense for a good man, uh, even if he doesn't have the revelation that Jesus is the eternal Son of God made flesh, that he's a good man. And we are all appalled at the idea of good men carelessly or unnecessarily losing their lives, especially at the hands of those that, that are motivated by, by whatever reasons. that, and, and so just the idea that this good man Peter is like, no, Jesus, you don't know. These, these men are wicked. These men are vile. We, I won't let them do that to you. You're too good of a man. I've seen you hang out with lepers that no one else wanted to. You, you've been with the outcast. We can't have you as a martyr. And so therefore, Peter is appalled at the thought that Jesus perhaps would, or perhaps I should say that, that Peter is appalled at the thought that Jesus would have to lose his life, and he's a good man. He hasn't done anything wrong. Even Pilate recognizes this a few weeks later, when, or, or a time, in, in, in the future, when Jesus is brought before him. Pilate recognizes, after questioning him, this man hasn't done anything wrong. And so even evil men, are appalled to some degree when good men who, who all they have done is sought the public good for them to lose their lives. It seems so unnecessary. So Peter speaks up, Lord, we can't allow this to happen to you. You've done nothing wrong. There's another reason perhaps that would drive Peter to keep Jesus from the cross, and that is that was his personal friend. Jesus is not just a good man, but Jesus has been a friend 
to Peter. Peter is rough around the edges. He's not as refined, perhaps, as some of the other disciples. And Peter has experienced nothing but kindness from Jesus. And so it is inconceivable of him to see one who was such a good man and to see such a one that has been such a friend to him go knowingly, knowing that these men seek his life, to expose himself to to such risk and danger, Peter would not have it. Brothers and sisters, I am of the mind that one of the things that has undermined the witness of the church in our generation is that we, like Peter, have found a way to minimize the importance of the cross. We end up being on the side of Satan, not even knowing that we are being on the side of Satan. We, we have almost become ashamed of everything that is represented by the cross. The suffering, the sacrifice, the atonement, that is all of those things that are procured by the cross of Christ. We, like Peter, step up in our day and we say, Lord, no, our, ours will not be characterized as a religion that is built on suffering. Ours will not be a church that will be centered around someone being crucified. In fact, some have become so ashamed of the concept of the cross that they call it cosmic child abuse. And it's to us that Jesus' words resonate. Get behind me, Satan. Because there is an inexorable connection between Peter's confession that Jesus is the Son of God, he is is the Messiah, he is the Christ, the Son of the true and the living God, and the cross that he faces in Jerusalem. If we undermine the one, then we negate the other. In other words, the the son of the living God, the the, the Messiah, the, the, the one who was promised and prophesied, if we do not see him on the cross, if, if everything does not converge at the cross, whatever we have is not the Christ of Christianity. And we've seen, we've seen efforts. I think this is part of what Paul is, is addressing and his concern in 2 Corinthians 11 when he says that I'm concerned that if someone comes to you and preaches another Jesus or someone preaches another gospel or someone comes with another spirit, then you are susceptible or you are, are want to believe it. And I think what it means to preach another Jesus is not to say that Jesus of Nazareth was not the real Jesus, but is to preach Jesus as Nazareth by somehow eclipsing or diminishing the significance of the cross. We preach a Jesus of miracles, but not a Jesus of the cross. We preach a Jesus of healing, but not of the cross. And so in the same vein that Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So Jesus says to those who are proud of a religion that somehow diminishes the significance of the cosmic event of God judging us in the person of Christ on his cross is not important to our religion. John Stott says that 
any religion that does not emphasize the cross of Christ is not a religion of Jesus. And I think that is what we have seen. In fact, a friend of mine was, was, was mentioning a number of years ago, he says, look at the different symbols that have carried or have been the, the, the banner of the Christian religion. At one point, it was a fish. Another point, it was a fish and a cross. And then at another point, it was the dove. And now it's a flame of fire. And we have continued to move further and further away from the cross in understanding and in defining our faith. But, and, and in fact, a friend has written a book entitled Christless Christianity. And I would go so far as to say, maybe it's not intentionally Christless, but certainly what we have seen is a growing or an increasing number of crossless Christianity. Here's what we need to see. The connection between Peter's confession and the cross of Jesus. To overshadow one is to deny the other. And the more we understand what the Messiah and who the Messiah is, the more we find it necessary to see him on the cross. And when we see the Messiah as he ought to be on the cross, that's the only reason we can make sense of a resurrection. And that's the only reason we can understand that what is taking place on the cross is not so much the cruelty of men and killing an innocent man, not so much the injustice or, or the personal pain of losing a good friend, but what we see when we understand Jesus as the Son of God, the, the Christ, the, the, the only begotten Son of God, seeing him on the cross properly as we ought, then what we see is not a friend who has been taken, not the cruelty of men, but what we see is the severity, the goodness, the justice, and the grace of God. Because in Christ on the cross... What we have is God's justice fully satisfied. And what we have is the substance of God's grace. The riches of God's grace towards us in all aspects of our lives is not just seen in Jesus walking the streets of Jerusalem. It's seen in Jesus bearing in his body the pain and the suffering that was due unto us for being rebels against God. Jesus, Peter speaks well and he speaks profoundly. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The moment he begins to diminish the necessity and the substance of the cross, then he joins sides with the devil. And Jesus rebukes him. Because, brothers and sisters, there's no way we can have Jesus as Savior without the cross. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of life and all that comes with it. And we especially thank you for the newness of life that you have given us in Christ. We thank you for your holy word that continues to inform us again and again of the depth of your love towards us and the bounty of your grace as it is in Christ.
We thank you for your Holy Spirit who illumines to us the promises of grace and salvation in Christ. And we pray that he would continue to bring anew to us in all of our thinking that we are yours. And our being yours has been sealed by the blood of Jesus. We thank you for his cross. We do thank you for the victory of an empty grave. But we thank you for the cross upon which he died. And we pray that his cross would be uppermost in all of our thinking as we endure and as we serve you until you call us home. Thank you for your word. We pray that we would never lose the correlation between the fact that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the Christ of the cross. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.